I'm really glad to be able to bring to you this morning uh, this um, uh, continuing series on our book of Philippians and very excited to dive into the text with you this week. You know, Philippians is one of my favorite books. It's a short book, but it's packed with so many great things for Christian living, for building faith, and for being and becoming the body of Christ that Jesus envisioned. You know, last week we brought uh, an introductory message focused on how this assembly of believers at Philippi was founded and established. And we saw that they were a group of believers who responded to the word of God. And they were a group of believers who knew the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they were a group of believers who stood firm in their faith in the middle of difficulty and opposition and persecution. And these things kind of gave us a broad context as we begin to look at the letter. But now, as we start, let me give you a few general background ideas about the letter itself. And this will give us a more immediate and focused context as we dive into the text. Okay, so so first, Philippians is what we call a prison epistle. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, these four letters are believed to have been written about the same time during one of Paul's imprisonments. And we're certain that this letter was written from prison because Paul just tells it uh, to us in chapter 1, verses 7 and 13 and 17. He just comes out and says that he's in prison. Now, Paul was in prison several times. You know, some have suggested that this letter was written uh, during his ministry in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, but most scholars kind of reject that idea because there's no record of Paul really being imprisoned during that time. And then some have suggested that it was written during Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea that's recorded in Acts chapter 24. Now, this, that's possible, but while some of the details in Philippians um, correspond to that, not all of them do. And so most believe that Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon as well were written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome that's recorded in Acts chapter 28. The details of Acts 28 fit really well with what we see in the book of Philippians. Like, for example, the palace guard mentioned in chapter 1, verse 13, fits well with a Roman imprisonment. Uh, in Acts 28, we see that Paul is free to receive uh, friends and, and guests and uh, to write letters as well. And that kind of fits well with what we see uh, here with Paul's friends, Timothy and Epaphras, coming and going. And this letter apparently being written as well. And then the reference to Caesar's household in chapter 4 fits well with Roman imprisonment as well. So these and a few other things lead us um, to the conclusion that Philippians was written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome sometime around the, the years 60 AD to 62 AD, some 17 to 19 years after Jesus' uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And I say first imprisonment because, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Paul was actually imprisoned in Rome twice. The first one is the one recorded in the book of Acts, uh, from which we believe he was eventually released. And the second imprisonment came around 66 AD. The second imprisonment is when we believe he wrote the second letter to Timothy, and from which uh, he was also martyred. So, but wherever he is, it's important to keep in mind that he is in prison, because it really makes the principles that he shares and demonstrates, and the themes in his letter, all the more powerful to us. Now, all right, let's just for a minute now identify a few overarching themes that are in this letter, and then we'll dive in, okay? One of those themes is joy. One of the themes you see all the way throughout this letter is joy. Now, the letter's not about joy, 
It's about other things. It's not like Paul is teaching them how to have joy. It's not like he's giving them you know, a four-step uh, method to joy or teasing him with some type of proven method that they can have if they'll just send him 1995 plus shipping and handling so that he can send them his book or something like that. Uh, the subject really isn't about joy at all. Instead, he just is joyful. And it's probably one of his most joyful letters. He refers to his own joy many times in this letter. He's joyful even though he's in prison. He's joyful over his relationship with them. He's joyful in praying for them. He's joyful that the gospel is being preached. He's joyful at the thought of being reunited with them. And he's joyful at the thought of their positive relationships that they had with each other. And, and this, this demonstration of joy in the midst of everything that he's facing is probably better than any five-step teaching on how to obtain and maintain joy. He's just demonstrating it for us in real life. You know, often a living, breathing example of a truth is better than a bunch of Facebook platitudes or any five-step process that you can find in a self-help book. And so that's why God calls us living epistles, known and read by everyone. When you live out Jesus, when you live out the life of Christ, you become a letter from God to the world around you. So one of the themes is joy. And then another theme that we see running throughout the letter is this idea of relationship. We see this great relationship that Paul has with the Philippian believers and this great relationship that Paul has with his co-workers and uh, with Timothy and with Epaphras and his concern that the Philippians have great relationships with each other. And related to this idea of relationship, there's also a theme of unity that runs throughout the letter as well. At least seven times in this letter, Paul uses the phrase, all of you, or something similar to that. And the idea is the unity that exists between believers that is created by Jesus, by faith in Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit that is indwelling each of us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and the grace of God is available to everyone equally. And that creates love and unity. And then lastly, uh, before we get into the text, I want you to notice that in this letter, there aren't really any big problems in this church that Paul has to address or fix. It's not like in, in Corinthians when you know, there were a hot mess of problems and worldliness and carnality and divisions. And it's not like the book of Galatians where Paul was dealing with this problem with Judaizers and with believers who were turning away from the faith of Jesus back to uh, Judaism and trying to uh, get a works-based righteousness. So here in this church, it seems to be free of major problems and schisms. And so this allows Paul to focus more on what it really means to live for Christ and to be the body of Christ that Jesus envisioned. So, all right, would you just bow with me for a moment in prayer as we get ready to look at the Word? God, give us ears to, to hear what you're saying to us and give us eyes to see what you're doing in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, chapter 1, beginning in verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now, pause there for a second. 
in every one of, uh, of Paul's letters, as, as he's greeting the church, he always begins with this blessing, this desire for the body of Christ, grace and peace to you. Now, this is not an accident. It's not just some throwaway line that, that Paul uses just to get to the more important stuff. So I want you to notice these words. Don't skip over them. Uh, his use of them is very intentional. There's, there's something in the very form of this greeting that implies a key aspect of the gospel. And that is that the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians are united into one new creation in Jesus. This was a common idea in many of Paul's letters. At almost the same time Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, he wrote to the Ephesians that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And all of the churches that Paul had established were made up of a combination of Jewish people and Gentiles. So look at that phrase again, grace and peace to you. Now, the traditional Hebrew greeting was shalom, which meant peace. And the traditional Greek greeting was the word kairon, which is often translated as joy, but was related to the word charis, which means gift or favor or goodwill or grace. And so right at the part, right at the start here, he's implying the unity of these two groups in his greeting. He's not, he's not going to write one letter to the Jewish believers and another letter uh, to the Gentile believers. He writes one letter to the body of Christ. You know, in a way, you know, we've done ministry for so many years. We often kind of break it up into different groups for ministry and fellowship. We have women's ministry and men's ministry. We have kids' ministry and youth ministry and young adult ministry and uh, old adults' ministry. And, you know, that's probably good and, and beneficial. We'll probably keep doing more of that. But at the same time, we must remember that we are one body united in Jesus. Paul said that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern one for another. And he desires for all of them to experience grace and peace. And now, notice who it is that he wants us to receive this grace from. It's grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Now, remember we said before that the word grace here is the translation of the Greek word charis. And it means gift or favor or goodwill. So Paul desires for them to have and, and experience goodwill from God, favor from God, gifts from God, grace from God. And these are all through the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, and it's not that we earn all of this or strive and scratch and claw our way into it. It's a charis, a grace, a favor, a good will coming from God. And it's received by the heart that turns to him in humility and repentance and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he has done for us in the crucifixion and in the resurrection. And then this grace and favor comes to us and brings us peace. First, peace with God. Right? For he told us in Ephesians, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself 
is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. We have peace with God and also peace from God. The prophet Isaiah said it this way. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast because it has stayed on you. All right, now let's look at the next section. It goes from verse 3 to verse 11, and it's often titled something like, you know, Paul's prayer or Paul's prayer and thanksgiving for the Philippians. But it's not actually a prayer that Paul is praying here. Paul is telling them about how he prays for them and about his thankfulness for their faith in Jesus. It's a little bit of a glimpse into Paul's prayer life for these Philippian believers. And so let's unpack it, beginning in verse 3. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you. All right, now, that's a good example for all of us. Whenever we pray, thanksgiving should be a part of it. You know, when you read the Psalms, uh, and even when David was in the worst of situations, uh, he would still often stop and find something to praise and thank God about. And as we saw from last week's message, there's something powerful about prayer and praising and thanking God, even in the midst of the darkest of situations, you know. And when you study the words for praise and prayer and thanksgiving in the Bible, you find that they are nearly always associated and often have um, some overlapping meanings to the point where it's just about a contradiction to try to say, you know, that you would be praising God but not thanking him or to be thanking God but not praising him. They're so uh, closely tied together. And so Paul's prayers are full of thanksgiving. So, all right, now going on here. In verses 4 and 5, it says this. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, pause and try to think for a minute like you are a member of that Philippian body of believers who is receiving this letter and hearing it for the first time. Here's a guy who had sacrificed to bring the gospel to them. He had selflessly shared his life with them, been falsely accused and beaten and uh, thrown into jail in their own town. And, And now he's hundreds of miles away across the Adriatic Sea in prison and at the mercy of the most powerful government in the world. And he's praying for me. He's interceding for me. He's concerned about us. And he's joyful about it. You know, I don't know about you, but that would humble me, I think. I mean, that would bring me to tears, I think. Remember, he's not writing this from a cruise ship somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, sipping lemonade and getting a a deep tissue massage. You know, Jill and I once, we went on a cruise. And I can tell you, it's easy to be joyful on a cruise, right? It's easy to be joyful and concerned about others when you don't have a care in the world. But Paul is in prison, in chains, uncertain about his future, not having any control over his own life. You know, most of us in those circumstances would be completely consumed with our own stuff, I think. You know, our own problems. You know, and for some people, it doesn't take anything near this to become you know, emotionally incapacitated and consumed with our own stuff. I mean, I've seen people have a difficult time focusing on worship because they had a bad hair day. You know, and I've seen some people uh, who go into a deep depression because their Instagram picture uh, didn't receive enough likes. But what grace this is from God exhibited here. 
Somehow Paul, in the middle of all his trials and uncertainty in the, of the situation and the lack of control over the outcome, finds the grace and liberty to pray for and rejoice over what God is doing in others. And he's demonstrating for us right here what he would later tell them in, in chapter 4 of this very letter, God is near. So don't be anxious for anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When you find yourself in darkness and in difficulty, find the grace of God to look beyond yourself and pray for someone else. It's powerful. All right, and so he's praying for them. Going on in verse 6, he says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, notice Paul does not say here, you know, um, I'm confident that, that you'll be strong enough to finish what God started. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm confident that you'll figure it out somehow. You know, sometimes when faced with disruption and trials, it can be easy to focus on ourselves and our limitations and begin to think, you know, how am I going to do this? I, I've just got to be strong enough. I've, got, I've just got to have the willpower. I've got, I've got to find it in myself to make it somehow. Well, Paul says that the same all-powerful and loving God who began this good work in you is the same God who's going to carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Just a few paragraphs later, he would tell them, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is at work in you. Sometimes it's easy to believe that God is at work in the world and, and fulfilling everything out there in the world. And you know, and all of that's true. But Paul says here that at the same time, God is also at work in you. The Holy Spirit is living in you. He's working in you. He's building faith in you. He's giving grace to you, conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and accomplishing his purposes in you. And he says, behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. I will never leave you or forsake you. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. And so what we really need is to rest in him. Or as Jesus said, to abide in him, to remain in him. As the psalmist said in Psalm 91, to dwell in the shelter of the Most High and to rest in the shadow of the Almighty and make the Most High your dwelling. Because he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. All right, now, Going on in verse 7, it says this. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. So, though Paul's in chains, God's grace was not in chains. He's sharing with them in the grace of God, even though... They are free and walking around and coming and going as they please. And Paul's in chains with Roman guards taking turns guarding him. The grace of God is flowing to him and flowing to them. Now, 
we may not be in physical chains, but I know that, that some of you, especially extroverts out there, feel like that you're in chains and that you're in prison. Well, whether you're on the job site or, or you're working at home or even if you're quarantined and feel all locked up and chained up like Paul, God's grace still flows to you. He's still available to you. And so all of us share in God's grace together. Going on in verse 8, he says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, I think that that is probably my new favorite verse right now. Paul longed to see these believers. It's clear that they loved him and cared for him, and they longed to see him as well. And so this is one of the effects that this unifying grace has on us, a longing for each other, affection for each other, a desire to be with each other. And, and, you know, as we've been calling and talking with, with you on the phone these past weeks, you know, many of you have expressed a desire to get back into church and to see everyone because, because you love everyone. And I can testify alongside the Apostle Paul how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. My love for you is growing. My longing to see you is growing. My affection for you is growing. And I want to thank all of you for your love for the body of Christ. Thank you to all of you who have reached out to uh, our brothers and sisters at this time with phone calls uh, and uh, letting them know that uh, they're cared for and that, that they're loved. And, uh, and also some of you by delivering groceries uh, to people who are at risk. You are being the body of Christ. Thank you to all of you who have prayed for others at need, for, for healthcare workers, for grocery store workers, and others on the front lines uh, interacting with the public, uh, for praying for people who are infected or, or who are at high risk right now. Thank you for those who have been praying for your pastors as well. You are being the body of Christ. Thank you for all of you who've been looking uh, at your context and asking God uh, to give you creative and simple ways to reach out and serve and minister to your community. I've heard from a number of you who are doing so many creative things, simple creative things with what you have to minister to the needs of those in your community. You know, today there's, there's several of our number down uh, at, at CityGate ministering and providing meals. And so many of you have reached out. Thank you for that. You are uh, being the body of Christ. Thank you for the longing that you have for one another and for your love for one another. You are being the body of Christ. All right, moving on. Uh, in verses 9 to 11, Paul shares with them what his prayers for them have been. And uh, these are the things that are on his heart and on God's heart for his people. Verse 9, he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. In other words, he wants them to be in the word of God, to keep growing in their knowledge of God, uh, keep getting more insight from God. And then he gives them several reasons why he wants us uh, to abound more and more in this knowledge and depth of insight, beginning in verse 10. So let's look at them. First, he says, so that you may be able to discern what is best. You know, as we live our lives, uh, there's many small and big decisions that we all have to make. And uh, the more that we know of the Word of God, the more we'll be able to discern what is best, what are the best decisions to make. And especially in times like this, we need discernment to know 
what is best. All right, going on in verse 10. We need more knowledge and depth of insight that we may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. You know, one day Jesus is coming back. And Paul tells believers in Jesus that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us, each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, I don't believe um, this judgment here is about salvation, but it's about rewards or the lack of rewards, right? So, and so Paul says in the previous verse, so we make it our goal to please him. God wants us to have more knowledge and depth of insight to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then lastly, verse 11, we need to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, when you study the New Testament, it's, it's very clear that we don't have a righteousness of our own. We don't make ourselves righteous or become good enough to be righteous in God's sight. Paul says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. That is, we can't be moral enough or be, to become righteous. We can never measure up to God's standard of righteousness and holiness. But in the next verse, he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made Known, a righteousness that is by faith in Jesus. We can only be right with God or righteous in the eyes of God by faith in Jesus. And, but this isn't only just a theological or theoretical idea. It's very practical. This faith in Jesus transforms the believer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. And so this is what Paul is referring to in this verse when he talks about the fruit of righteousness. Because fruit is something that is produced on a branch when it's connected to a living tree. When believers are connected to Christ, because they're abiding in him, then they begin to produce fruit that comes from him. Fruit of righteousness. So the righteousness that we have from him begins to work itself from the inside out. And we begin to do right things, not because we ourselves are righteous, it's because we are connected to the living Jesus. We produce this fruit of righteousness. And so Paul says that we need to abound in knowledge of the word and depth of insight so that we know what kind of fruit that we should be producing. So that we know what righteousness looks like. All right, so... Let's stop there for now, and and we'll pick it up in verse 12 next week. But here's how we're going to close our service today. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you really haven't had a relationship with him, um, but you find yourself now thinking, you know what, I think I need a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Here's what he says to you. Peter said that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And John said that this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, you can't save yourself. 
I can't save myself. We can't earn our way with God or somehow uh, get to the place where where we're we're good enough for God. If we're honest, which one of us would say that, you know, when we die and are approaching the gates of heaven, the the gates are just going to swing open as the angels sing the hallelujah chorus to welcome us. The, The truth is, if we're honest, we're not all that. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death away from God for eternity. But he goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so if you're ready to come to him, put your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross and in his resurrection. What I'm going to do right now is bow in prayer. And I would like to lead you in prayer. It's a prayer of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father. I come to you today. I confess. I can't save myself. I don't measure up to your standards of righteousness. I'm a sinner and you're not. But I believe that Jesus died for my sin on the cross. And I believe that he rose again from the dead. Jesus, please be my savior Be my Lord and my King. Help me walk in faith and humility and trust in you all of my days. And help me grow a little bit in you every day of my life. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. My friend, if you've done that, I can tell you with the assurance of the word of God that God has done everything that you've asked him to. And that prayer, it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just a, um, some fire insurance or anything like that. It's just the beginning of a lifelong walk of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to just do a few things to grow in that walk. First, get in the Word of God every day, just for a little bit. If you've never read the Word of God before, start with the Gospel of Mark. You'll be amazed at how God is speaking into you, to you in ways you never thought were possible. And then get into prayer just a little bit every day, even if it's for just five or ten minutes. God wants to hear from you every day. And then tell someone what you've done. Uh, uh, Go on our website, uh, LancasterFirst.com, and fill out a Connect card. I would love a chance to help you in your walk with Christ. Or or even put it in the chat feature uh, uh, during the stream. Or... um, Uh, somehow just let us know. We're going to put some resources in that chat feature for you uh, as well. Uh, These are resources for people to begin a walk with the Lord Jesus. And so we encourage you to avail yourself of those. All right, so right now we are going to uh, close in prayer. Would you all bow with me? And uh, God, thank you so much for this time we've had together. God, I pray for each one who's been watching. Uh, Fill them with your grace and your goodness and power and faith and everything good that comes from you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.